much for meeting with us this morning. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, which we trust to be in our midst, Lord. And we ask that as we open your word specifically to hear what you would have to say, that you would allow us to hear that. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our eyes to see the wonders of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans in the New Testament. As we continue our look at this book, this morning we're looking at Romans chapter 2 and the first 20 verses of chapter 3. So it's a big section. Um, There's so much here we could probably spend weeks studying just this or months spending just this, but we're going to do it all in one lump to get the big idea. Uh, So Romans 2, verses 1 through 3.20, and I know I would ordinarily ask you to stand, but this is such a long reading. Uh, Stand in spirit, but remain seated, and follow along as I read from Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written. Though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's word. All right, there's so much in this passage, we're not going to get to much of it. So I want to encourage you with the same way I did at the beginning, or uh, in the introductory remarks of the series, you just got to read it slowly, and you got to read the whole thing all at once to see how he's building his argument case to case. But we're going to hit the high points of what he's talking about in this particular text. And as we continue, kind of pick off with, pick off, uh, pick up, excuse me, where we were last week, the whole idea of this whole section and what we looked at last week is that he's showing us quite simply that none of us can earn our way into God's good graces. None of us can earn salvation by our own works. That's the, that's the idea, that you are, as often has been said, worse than you think you are. But don't be dismayed because, of course, God knows is much, is much greater than you ever imagined. And that is, in essence, what Romans can be summed up as saying. But it's a hard, there are hard lessons that we have to learn in order to get there. And that's what he is gently taking us through as he, as he exposes the, the, uh, the corruption that exists in the human heart. And I wanted to start using uh, an illustration. And uh, last year, oh, dang, I'm going to use you as an illustration. I hope that's okay. I didn't get your permission first, so you're okay with that. Because it was, it's my fault as much as yours. We were looking for a truck together. It's okay if I tell this story? Okay, good. <laughs> Put him on the spot. Uh, uh, Dunning is my son. Um, 
The car that he had was beginning to need more and more work, so he was wanting to look for something different and uh, wanted to look for a truck. And he knows how I'm good at scouring to find deals. Sometimes I find them, sometimes they backfire on me. This is one of those situations, as you'll find out. But we've, uh, you know, I thought, well, let's do something a little different. Let's look at the auction yards. Maybe we can find a truck that, you know, has a few dents in it already. We'll, we'll, uh, the dents will knock the price down. That's why perhaps we'll find it in the auction and we'll get a good truck with a few dents. After all, the trucks are going to get dented anyway. Might as well get the advantage of having it already dented. <laughs> so I'm looking at auction yards. I found a couple of potential candidates that I thought we could look at. And one was in Oklahoma City, which was good because we have family in Oklahoma City who could go and you know, pick it up if we actually won the auction. Uh, the only problem was we're not there in Oklahoma City to go look at it in person. So we're looking for the parameters, you know, the ones that run the drives, but just have some, you know, minor issues on the outside. And we found this truck, it's this beautiful black F-150, uh, not a whole lot of dents on the outside, and the inside looked like it was brand new. It was a, it was a very nice looking truck, came under the category of runs and drives, so we bought it. My sister went to the auction house, auction yard, she picked up the truck and it drove just fine. She drove it to a mechanic where we wanted to have it looked over and to find out, okay, what does it need? What are the things that we can invest in while it's still there? And uh, it was there for a couple of days and, until we finally got the report. And uh, I will not forever remember, forget what he said. He said, you have bought yourself a great big paperweight. <laughs> Those were my words. Those were your words. Oh. Okay, I won't forget those words. <laughs> We've bought ourselves a great big paperweight. And I was like, what do you mean? Surely, I mean, it drove from the auction house to the mechanic. It can't be that bad. And we got the list, and it was about two or three or four, I don't know how many pages of things that he had found that would have to be addressed with the truck. So, you know, if you're a mechanic and you happen to have a bunch of spare parts around, then maybe it, you could make it work. But for, you know, the average guy like us, we realized... Uh, here is something that really looked good on the surface, but you come to find out it is just thoroughly corrupt all the way through and through. You know, that, and that's, just a, that's a sinking feeling to find out that you have, that it, it, things look good on the outside, but you realize the inside is just not. It's just dead. And that is, in essence, what Paul, of course, is saying to you in this passage. He's saying, look, you may, you may look pretty good on the outside, you may feel pretty good about things on the outside, but I want you to know, inside, you too are thoroughly corrupt. And that's a very hard thing to swallow. It was a very hard thing for us to swallow about that truck, realizing we've just taken a big hit that we were not prepared to take. Um, but God is good. He got us out of that in the same way that God is good. And he will get us out of the fact that our heart is thoroughly corrupt. I mean, that is, in essence, the good news that he's announcing with this letter. He says, take heart, I want to show you how bad things really are, but I want you to know before we ever get into that, and that's what he said at the very beginning, that I'm announcing to you good news, good news that salvation comes by the power of God and not the power of man. And the reason that's such a good news is because you have no power in of yourself to ever earn it because your heart is thoroughly and utterly corrupt. Now, in the earlier chapter, we were looking, last week, we were looking at the end of chapter 1, where he's showing us, he's beginning to, to 
expose that. And he exposes that in perhaps the most obvious way that his reader could understand. He's exposing the, the corrupt society in which much of the Roman world existed. Not all of it, of course, but in some of the worst, worst places in the Roman world, there was a lot of debased living, as he's describing it. A lot of things that were perverse happening. And it was happening in the daylight. It was happening in such a way that people were giving approval to it. They were, they were recommending it. And the whole world could see it. So it's, it's easy to pick on that and say, look how bad things are. This is evidence of the fact that God's wrath is being revealed in the present because he has allowed this to go on. And he's allowed the things, the natural consequences to take a hold of these people who have gone down this path. Now, that, again, as we considered last week, that's an easy, that's an easy group to pick on because their living is very visible in the way that they, are, they have abandoned any form of living that would preserve some kind of integrity within society. But as he moves to chapter 2, he's very subtly saying, but look, some of you I know are not living that way, and I recognize that. Not everybody is equally as heinous as other people. Not all acts are equally as bad as other acts. So you may very well be agreeing with me all the time. Yes, I see people living this way, and I want to agree with you. It's horrible. It's horrific. It's terrible. And as he, as he invites you to just say that or even to think it, he knows now you have taken the bait and you are on the hook. Because he goes on to say, you then, who judge others, are you too not guilty of doing the same things? Now, this is a different category of people, and it's important to understand this. This is, he's not moving from Gentiles to Jews at this point in time. He's moving from those who would agree that a debased living and these, these perverse lifestyles are, are bad. There's the differentiation between the end of Romans 1 and the beginning of Romans 2 is that some would look at it and say it's bad, and some would look at it and approve of it. So the first group we looked at at the end of Romans 1 is the group that says we approve of those who live this way. And the second group is those who looks at that and says, we don't approve of those who live this way. But the thing both have in common is that they're both doing it. They're both doing it. One may be doing it out in public for the world to see. The other one is doing perhaps in a less, uh, a less obvious way. Uh, maybe it's private. He doesn't spell out. That's the interesting thing. He doesn't spell out exactly how they are guilty of doing this. And I don't think he needs to as he goes on. Because of those who are reading this, you, you know the duplicitous nature of your own heart. You sense in which, when you are judging somebody else, that there is this inner voice that's telling you something on the inside, but wait a minute, don't you do that sometimes? I mean, think about the easy one, when you're driving along the road and you curse at the driver in front of you because he's cut you off. And it comes to mind the fact that, oh, I did that to somebody last week. And there are other things, of course. We can look at the debased lifestyle that he's described in terms of the perverse living. And you think, well, I haven't done that particular thing. I haven't done this particular thing. But then we recall Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about the necessity to be perfect. And he's helping to see that what it means to murder is not just taking a gun or a knife and killing somebody with it. But it's also calling them a fool in your heart. The attitude towards the person is the same. So there is this sense in which the moment that you judge another person, the moment that you do that, 
then you are judging yourself too because you are showing, you are admitting, whether you realize it or not, you are admitting there is a universal law by which we can judge people. You see, that's the danger of what we're saying. The moment you make a judgment of another person, any moment that is, you are recognizing there is some external rule, there is some external lifestyle that we are all measured against. Now, whether you know whether we can define what that lifestyle is, that's, that's what we're, we're going to go see. There's different ways of doing that as the passage begins to spell out. But the point he's making is, look, there's not a single one of you that's reading this letter that I'm writing to the church in Rome, whether you're a, whether you're a Jew, which he's going to get to, whether you're a Gentile that agrees with these things are wrong, or you're a Gentile who's been in that lifestyle. All of you are under the same measure of judgment. And that's what he's beginning to spell out, how that is the case. And it's a hard thing, of course, for us to see. But again, if we really want to understand the nature of God's grace, the goodness of his mercy, we have to appreciate some measure of understanding of what he's actually rescued us from. So he's exposing that thoroughly corrupt nature of our own hearts. We are all guilty before the Lord, as he says. Now, as we consider that second group, those who would agree that, yes, that kind of lifestyle that he describes in Romans 1 is, is bad, there is also this sense in which if they're not practicing it out in the open and they're practicing it in the private, you just find how that is, there is a, there is a difference. I mean, there, is, there are certainly degrees of heinousness of sin. I mean, to, to literally murder a person is worse than calling them a fool in your heart. You're both guilty of the same, in essence, law, but there is a difference. And clearly, if you murder someone on the street, you are, you are more destructive to society than when you call them a fool in your heart. You see what I'm saying? And those aspects of those who approve of living in such a way that God has given them over to a debased a debased mind that they do what ought not to be done, are being given over to sense a very obvious measure of the wrath of God being revealed. But some of us who don't do those things out in the public, but rather try to reserve that in the private areas and don't even want to do them at all, perhaps, but find ourselves at times guilty, there is some measure of restraint on those people. There is some measure of, of their actions are less obviously damaging to society than the one who's doing it in the most heinous of manners. And there's a danger in thinking that because my actions where I do them in private aren't hurting anybody else, or I don't see society being harmed as a result of it, is to somehow think that, well, the wrath of God is not revealed against my actions, therefore I'm okay. There's that way of thinking. And Paul is addressing that very thing as, as those who would seek to justify that it's okay as long as my things aren't out of the open and, and pervert and hurting people. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge others who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? In other words, you're not yet feeling the sense of the, re the revealed wrath of God like others may be who are experiencing the due penalty for their living in such a way. Are you presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
And he goes on in verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, if the first group is actually revealing the wrath of God because they, they can see how these due penalties for their actions are happening in society, and you don't see those due penalties, you don't see the wrath of God happening, doesn't mean it's not coming to you. That's what he's saying. You're storing up for yourself wrath that will, in the end, come back and get you. That's the whole idea, that you are equally as guilty before them as they are. So what kind of examples can we think of that you do in secret? Where some may be living in a perverse lifestyle, others with their phones or their devices perhaps get addicted to some forms of pornography. And while you're not directly exploiting some young person, as some others may be doing who are doing it out in the open, nonetheless, you're still guilty of the same thing. But you're thinking, but this isn't harming anybody, so therefore, it's okay. Again, that's, that's presuming upon the forbearance and patience of God to say, this sin is permittable, or that one is not. You are, nonetheless, as he says, storing up wrath for yourself. How do we know this to be the case? Well, that's what he goes on to spell out in verse 14 in chapter 2. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, what law is he talking about there? He's talking about the law of God that came about being revealed to the Jewish people especially under the time of Moses. When Moses led the people of Israel out of their slavery and bondage to Egypt, and he brings them to the mountain where he had told Moses to bring them, and he meets them there, and he delivers them the law of God, the Ten Commandments, among other things. He, he delivers them this moral law that is really revealing to them the, the character and nature of the God who has rescued them. So that's the law Paul is referring to. The Gentiles... And by the way, the word Gentile just means the other nations, the nations who aren't Jewish. They didn't, they didn't have the law revealed to them. They didn't have this Ten Commandments given to them. So in the one sense, we could say, how are they nonetheless guilty if they didn't have the law? It wasn't on their books, as it were. And Paul is writing, well, how do we know that? Because their own consciences are bearing witness against them. There is a sense in which the, the law of God, the moral character of God, is written on the hearts of all men as a result of being made in the image of God. And the fact that there are some who would be out there condemning the other people in their lifestyle is showing that. So while it may not be the, the revealed Ten Commandments or what's contained in the, the Mosaic Code as the law against which they are guilty... Nonetheless, the, the moral nature of God is written on their heart, and their conscience itself is bearing witness against them. So there is this sense in which we don't have to have Paul spell this out because your own conscience is telling you, yes, in fact, you too are corrupt. As he goes on to say, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, he goes on to, to, to make some other arguments that I'm not going to get into, but I do want to hit on one as he turns his attention then to the Jewish people. 
And it's not that the Jewish people couldn't identify with one of those two groups before, but he's turning specifically to the, the rights and privileges that the Jewish people had. Because they, they did have privileges that the Gentiles did not have, in that they had God's word revealed to them. They had given, been given a promise to their forefather that God would be their God, that they would be his people, that through them the nations of the earth would be blessed. They, they, they were given these promises, and the sign of that promise, of course, was circumcision. When Abraham was told to circumcise himself and all the males in his household, the, in, the, the, the sense was that I want you to do this as this visible sign that this promise to be your God is carried with you and you will know it. And the fact that you are my people, I'm giving you the revelation of my moral nature in the law. I'm giving you this tabernacle, which is a sense of knowing that, yes, I am in your midst. For the tabernacle is this visible presence where God would come down in the Holy of Holies, that he is in the camp. Privileges of the presence of God, privileges of the moral character of God, privileges of the sign that's visible of the promise that they are to inherit was all privileges that the Jewish people had. And there's a danger if you're one of those people, a Jew who is ethnically Jew and has received these things, is thinking, well, these things all guarantee that I'm okay. They guarantee that God's salvation is for me. And Paul is saying, that's not the case. That is not the case. For if you are presuming upon these things, and yet you're living in a way that's out of accord with, the, with the, the law that's been revealed, you're showing that your circumcision, as he says, is uncircumcision. You're no better off than the, than the Gentile. That's what he's saying. It wasn't given to you to be a license to live any way that you wanted. It was given to you so that you would know how it is you're to pursue life. How it is you're to pursue life. This is where he gets to this conclusion to know that these things aren't going to save you. These things aren't going to save you. In verses 9 through 18, he's kind of summarizing his old argument. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one, who seeks, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. On the way of peace, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And these are all quotations he's taking from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, which was directed to the people who had inherited all of these great promises and signs and wonders and presence of God. He's exposing the fact that, look, don't presume upon things to save you that cannot save you. These things cannot in themselves save you. Now, that's a frightening moment. It almost seems that, well, what point is there to even have the law? What privilege is there to have God being revealed to us? What is the, what is the benefit of trying to live a good life, if that's the case. If we are all condemned, why then do we have the law? And he summarizes one purpose, one purpose of it at the very end of the passage we read, so that your sin and guilt might be exposed. It might reveal to you the true nature of your own heart that needs to be saved. 
That's one important aspect of the giving of the law. It's meant not to lead you to a a sense of self-righteousness. It's meant to lead you to understand your need for the gospel. Your need for Christ is the purpose of the law. So what what do we learn, Dorothy, from all of this? We learn that our works are no safe haven, that we will never earn salvation for ourselves. But that's not to say that there's not a point in living well, in trying to live a good life. And I want you to turn to chapter 2, verse 6, and look what he has to say there. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth... But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is one of those passages that if you don't read it carefully and you don't read it in the context of the grander argument, seems to be saying the very opposite thing of what Paul is trying to argue. I mean, the whole case that Paul is building is that no one can earn salvation for himself. And yet he takes a moment here to say, he will render to each one according to his works. You think, wait, wait, what is he talking about? Well, again, in the context of what he's doing here, he's exposing to everybody their guilt before the Lord. Now, if you're talking about guilt before the Lord, I want you to think of a courtroom setting. If you were in a courtroom setting, how would you prove somebody's guilt? You prove someone's guilt by bringing evidence of it before the court. And what he's been saying is there is evidence of your life, of what you're seeking in the things that you do, in the life that you live. That's the evidence of what you are seeking after. Now, Paul would write, that would be the evidence of your faith, if you want to think of it that way. You know, as James would put it, you know, you show me your faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. It's not that the works will save them, but the, but the works themselves are evidence of my faith. And that's a, that's a bit what Paul is hinting at here. He's saying all of your works are enough to condemn you before the, before the court with the law. But then he says this interesting thing. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And you think, wait a minute, <laughs> is that mean he's saying if you, do, if you live well, if you do a good job, then you will inherit eternal life? Well, no, not exactly. I want you to look at the key words that are expressed there. There's, the word seek is important in this passage. He's talking about not, not the works that they're doing, but those who are seeking for glory and honor and immortality, as opposed to the one who is self-seeking. So there's two different things that they're seeking. One is self-seeking. And one is seeking glory and honor and immortality. Now, as you think about, well, what exactly is glory and honor and immortality all about? What's all the things that are wrapped up in what he's revealing in the person of his son? And how do you know that you're seeking these things? You're seeking what is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ? It results in patient well-doing persevering good works, in other words. So there is, there is, it is important to have the law, 
not as a means of earning God's salvation, but of learning how to seek after the Lord. How do you seek after God? I mean, of course, the language of Romans and the language of the New Testament is, well, you have to believe in Him. You have to trust Him. But what does trust actually look like in practice? If I trust God, well, then I'm going to listen to what He has to say, and I'm going to follow it. I mean, if someone tells you, here's what you can find at the end of this path, and if you believe them, you're going to walk that path. If you don't believe them, you'll do whatever you want. Now, you may say you believe them, but he says, show me the evidence of your faith. Well, I don't have any because I haven't walked that path. You told me to walk that path. Well, I haven't done that. See, it's not the, it's not the walking of your path that's earning you a salvation. He's saying, look, this is evidence of your faith. Faith is not absence from an impact upon your life. So if you want to know, what is it that I'm seeking? You look at your life. You look at your life. And if you're examining your life, if you take that step back and look down upon yourself, if you can do that in the third person and say, what would I conclude about this person in terms of what their heart is attached to by what they are seeking by observing their life? Paul wants us to know man, there is good news, and the good news is that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, those whose hearts are thoroughly corrupt. And guess what? That's you. Do you believe that good news? Well, seek me. Seek me. The Old Testament put it this way. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's what faith looks like. That's what saving faith looks like. It means to seek after the Savior, the one who reveals the glory and honor of God and who grants immortality because His glory and His honor through faith become credited to you. That's the gospel. The gospel says, guess what? You're a lot worse than you thought you were. Your heart is thoroughly corrupt. But there is good news and that the grace of God is far greater, far greater than you ever dreamed or imagined. So seek after that one who has revealed it to you. Seek after his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you did not leave us in our sin, that you did not leave us drowning in our own corruption. But instead, while we were still sinners, Trapped by the corruption of our own hearts, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die in our place, that our guilt might be carried away, and instead we might be credited with his righteousness so that our hearts would be forever changed and our eyes would be forever open to your glory and your honor. Help us, Lord, to live lives that exhibit this faith. In Jesus' name, amen.